Nigel was lying in the dark, resting completely, so that, as he had not been either feeling or thinking at all, he might have been lying there for hours or for years, as far as he could tell. But now he heard voices. Not voices that he had ever heard before. There seemed to be a medical board, or perhaps a court of inquiry, going on close at hand, in an adjoining room, with the door open, possibly though he could not see any light. Now, the niggle case, said a voice, a severe voice, more severe than the doctor's. What was the matter with him, said a second voice, a voice that you might have called gentle, though it was not soft. It was a voice of authority and sounded at once hopeful and sad. What was the matter with with Niggle. His heart was in the right place. Yes, but it did not function properly, said the first voice. And his head was not screwed on tight enough. He hardly ever thought at all. Look at the time he wasted, not even amusing himself. He never got ready for his journey. He was moderately well off, and yet he arrived here almost in dest almost destitute and had to be put in the pauper's wing. A bad case, I am afraid. I think he should have to stay some time yet. It would not do him any harm, perhaps, said the second voice. But of course, he is only a little man. He was never meant to be anything very much, and he was never very strong. Let us look at the records. Yes, there are some favorable points, you know. Perhaps, said the first voice, but very few that will really bear examination. Well, said the second voice, there are these. He was a painter by nature, in a minor way, of course. Still, a leaf by Niggle has a charm of its own. He took a great deal of pains with the leaves, just for their own sake. But he never thought that that made him important. There is no note in the records of his pretending even to himself that it excused his neglect of things ordered by the law. Then he should not have neglected so many, said the first voice. All the same, he did answer a good many calls. A small percentage, mostly of the easier sort, and he called those interruptions. The records are full of the words. The, rep the records are full of the word together with a lot of complaints and silly imprecations. True, but they looked like interruptions to him, of course, poor little man. And there is this. He never expected any return, as so many of his sort call it. There is the parish case, the one that came in later. He was Niggle's neighbor, never did a stroke for him, and seldom showed any gratitude at all. But there is no note in the records that Niggle expected Parrish's gratitude. He does not seem to have thought about it. Yes, that is a point, said the first voice, but rather small. I think you will find Niggle often merely forgot. Things he had to do for Parrish, he put out of his mind as a nuisance he had that he had done with. Still, there is this last report, said the second voice. That wet bicycle ride. I rather lay stress on that. 
seems plain that this was a genuine sacrifice. Nagel guessed that he was throwing away his last chance with his picture, and he guessed, too, that Parrish was worrying unnecessarily. I think you put it too strongly, said the first voice. But you have the last word. It is your task, of course, to put the best interpretation on the facts. Sometimes they will bear it. What do you propose? I think it is a case for a little gentle treatment now, said the second voice. Nickel thought that he had never heard anything so generous as that voice. It made gentle treatment sound like a load of rich gifts and the summons to a king's feast. Then suddenly Niggle felt ashamed. To hear that he was considered a case for gentle treatment overwhelmed him and made him blush in the dark. It was like being publicly praised when you and all the audience knew that the praise was not deserved. Niggle hid his blushes in the rough blanket. There was a silence. Then the first voice spoke to Niggle quite close. You have been listening, it said. Yes, said Niggle. Well, what have you to say? Could you tell me about Parrish, said Niggle. I should like to see him again. I hope he's not very ill. Can you cure his leg? It used to give him a wretched time. And please don't worry about him and me. He was a very good neighbor, and he let me have excellent potatoes, very cheap, which saved me a lot of time. Did he? said the first voice. I'm glad to hear it. There was another silence. Niggle heard the voices receding. Well, I agree, he heard the first voice say in the distance. Let him go on to the next stage. Tomorrow, if you like. Niggle woke up to find that his blinds were drawn and his little cell full of sunshine. He got up and found that some comfortable clothes had been put out for him, not hospital uniform. After breakfast, the doctor treated his sore hands, putting some salve on them that healed them at once. He gave Nickel some good advice and a bottle of tonic in case he needed it. In the middle of the morning, they gave Nickel a biscuit and a glass of wine, and then they gave him a ticket. You can go to the railway station now, said the doctor. The porter will look after you. Goodbye. Niggle slipped out of the main door and blinked a little. The sun was very bright. Also, he had expected to walk out into a large town to match the size of the station, but he did not. He was on the top of a hill, green, bare, swept by a keen, invigorating wind. Nobody else was about. Away down under the hill, he could see the roof of the, ra- of the station shining. He walked downhill to the station briskly, but without hurry. The porter spotted him at once. This way, he said, and led Niggle to a bay in which there was a very pleasant little local train standing, one coach and a small engine, both very bright, clean, and newly painted. It looked as if this was their first run. Even the track that lay in front of the engine looked new, The rails shone, the chairs were painted green, and the sleepers gave off a delicious smell of fresh tar in the warm sunshine. The coach was empty. Where does this train go, Porter? asked Niggle. 
I don't think they have fixed its name yet, said the porter, but you'll find it all right. He shut the door. The train moved off at once. Niggle lay back in his seat. The, the little engine puffed along in a deep cutting with high green banks, roofed with blue sky. It did not seem very long before the engine gave a whistle. The brakes were put on and the train stopped. There was no station, no signboard, only a flight of steps up the green embankment. At the top of the steps, there was a wicket gate in a trim hedge. By the gate stood his bicycle, at least it looked like his, and there was a yellow label tied on the bars with Niggle written on it in large black letters. Niggle pushed open the gate, jumped on the bicycle, and went bowling downhill in the spring sunshine. Before long, he found that the path on which he had started had disappeared, and the bicycle was rolling over a marvelous turf. It was green and close, and yet he could see every blade distinctly. He seemed to remember having seen or dreamed of that sweep of grass somewhere or other. The curves of the land were familiar somehow. Yes, the ground was becoming level as it should. And now, of course, it was beginning to rise again. A great green shadow came between him and the sun. Niggle looked up and fell off his bicycle. Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished. If you could say that of a tree that was alive, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch, he gazed at the tree and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift, he said. He was referring to his art and also to the result, but he was using the word quite literally. He went on looking at the tree. All the leaves he had ever labored at were there as he had imagined them rather than as he had made them. And there were others that had only budded in his mind and many that might have budded if only he had had time. Nothing was written on them. They were just exquisite leaves, yet they were dated as clear as a calendar. Some of the most beautiful and most characteristic, the most perfect examples of the Niggle style were seen to have been produced in collaboration with Mr. Parrish. There was no other way of putting it. The birds were building in the tree. Astonishing birds. How they sang. They were mating, hatching, growing wings, and flying away singing into the forest, even while he looked at them. For now he saw that the forest was there too, opening out on either side and marching away into the distance. The mountains were glimmering far away. After a time, Nagel turned toward the forest. Not because he was tired of the tree, but he seemed to have got it all clear in his mind now and was aware of it and of its growth even when he was not looking at it. As he walked away, he discovered an odd thing. The forest, of course, was a distant forest, yet he could approach it even enter it without its losing that particular charm. 
He had never before been able to walk into the distance without turning it into mere surroundings. It really added a considerable attraction to walking in the country because as you walked, new distances opened out so that you now had doubled, treble, quadruple distances, doubly, trebly, and quadruply enchanting. You could go on and on and have a whole country in a garden or in a picture, if you preferred to call it that. You could go on and on, but not perhaps forever. There were the mountains in the background. They did get nearer, very slowly. They did not seem to belong to the picture, or only as a link to something else, a glimpse through the trees of something different, a further stage, another picture. Nagel walked about, but he was not merely pottering. He was looking round carefully. The tree was finished, though not finished with, just the way, just the other way about to what it used to be, he thought. But in the forest, there were a number of inconclusive regions that still needed work and thought. Nothing needed altering any longer. Nothing was wrong as far as it had gone, but it needed continuing up to a definite point. Nagel saw the point precisely in each case. He sat down under a very beautiful distant tree, a variation of the great tree, but quite individual, or it would be, or it would be with a little more attention. And he considered where to begin work and where to end it and how much time was required. He could not quite work out the scheme. Of course, he said, what I need is parish. There are lots of things about earth, plants and trees that he knows and I don't. This place cannot be left just as my private park. I need help and advice. I ought to have got it sooner. He got up and walked to the place where he had decided to begin work. He took off his coat, then down in a little sheltered hollow, hidden from further view. He saw a man looking round, rather bewildered. He was leaning on a spade, but plainly did not know what to do. Nagel hailed him. Parrish, he called. Parrish shouldered his spade and came up to him. He still limped a little. They did not speak, just nodded, as they used to do, passing in the lane. But now they walked about together, arm in arm. Without talking, Niggle and Parrish agreed exactly where to make the small house and garden which seemed to be required. As they worked together, it became plain that Niggle was now the better of the two at ordering his time and getting things done. Oddly enough, it was Niggle who became most absorbed in building and gardening, while Parrish often wandered about looking at trees, and especially at the tree. One day Niggle was busy planting a quickset hedge, and Parrish was lying on the grass nearby, looking attentively at a beautiful and shapely little yellow flower growing in the green turf. Niggle had put a lot of them among the roots of the tree long ago, Suddenly Parrish looked up. His face was glistening in the sun, and he was smiling. This is grand, he said. I oughtn't to be here, really. Thank you for putting in a word for me. Nonsense, said Niggle. I don't remember what I said, but anyway, it was not nearly enough. Oh, yes, it was, said Parrish. It got me out a, a lot sooner. That second voice, you know, he had me sent here. He said, you had asked to see me. I owe it to you. 
No, you owe it to the second voice, said Nickel. We both do. They went on living and working together. I do not know how long. It is no use denying that at first they occasionally disagreed, especially when they got tired. For at first they did sometimes get tired. They found that they had both been provided with tonics. Each bottle had the same label. A few drops to be taken in water from the spring before resting. They found the spring in the heart of the forest. Only once long ago had Niggle imagined it, but he had never drawn it. Now he perceived that it was the source of the lake that glimmered far away and the nourishment of all that grew in the country. The few drops made the water astringent, rather bitter, but invigorating, and it cleared the head. After drinking, they rested alone, and then they got up again, and things went on merrily. At such times, Niggle would think of wonderful new flowers and plants, and Parrish always knew exactly how to set them, and where they would do best. Long before the tonics were finished, they had ceased to need them, Parrish lost his limp. As their work drew to an end, they allowed themselves more and more time for walking about, looking at the trees and the flowers and the lights and shapes and the lie of the land. Sometimes they sang together, but Niggle found that he was now beginning to turn his eyes more and more often toward the mountains. The time came when the house and the hollow, the garden, the grass, the forest, the lake, and all the country was nearly complete in its own proper fashion. The great tree was in full blossom. We shall finish this evening, said Parrish one day. After that, we will go for a really long walk. They set out next day, and they walked until they came right through the, ed the distances to the edge it was not visible, of course. There was no line or fence or wall. But they knew that they had come to the margin of that country. They saw a man. He looked like a shepherd. He was walking down. He was walking towards them, down the grass slopes that led into the mountains. Do you want a guide, he asked. Do you want to go on? For a moment, a shadow fell between Niggle and perish, for Niggle knew that he did now want to go on, and in a sense ought to go on, but Parrish did not want to go on, and was not yet ready to go. I must wait for my wife, said Parrish to Niggle. She'd be lonely. I rather gathered that they would send her after me, sometime or other, when she was ready, and when I had got things ready for her. The house is finished now as well as we could make it. But I should like to show it to her. She'll be able to make it better, I expect, more homely. I hope she'll like this country, too. He turned to the shepherd. Are you a guide, he asked. Could you tell me the name of this country? Oh, don't you know, said the man. It is Niggle's country. It is Niggle's picture, or most of it. A little of it is now Parrish's garden. Niggle's picture, said Parrish, in astonishment. Did you think of all this, Niggle? I never knew you were so clever. Why didn't you tell me? 
He tried to tell you long ago, said the man, but you would not look. He had only got canvas and paint in those days, and you wanted to mend your roof with them. <laughs> this is what you and your wife used to call Niggle's nonsense, or that daubing. But it did not look like this then. Not real, said Parrish. No, it was only a glimpse then, said the man. But you might have caught a glimpse if you had ever thought it worth while to try. I did not give you much chance, said Nickel. I never tried to explain. I used to call you Old Earth Grubber. But what does it matter? We have lived and worked together now. Things might have been different, but they could not have been better. All the same, I'm afraid I shall have to be going on. We shall meet again, I expect. There must be many more things we can do together. Goodbye. He shook Parrish's hand warmly. A good, firm, honest hand, it seemed. He turned and looked back for a moment. The blossom on the great tree was shining like a flame. All the birds were flying in the air and singing. Then he smiled and nodded to Parrish and went off with the shepherd. He was going to learn about sheep and the high pastures and look at a wider sky and walk ever further and further towards the mountains, always uphill. Beyond that, I cannot guess what became of him. Even little Niggle in his own home could glimpse the mountains far away and they got into borders of his picture but what they are really like and what lies beyond them, only those can say who have climbed them. I think he was a silly little man, said Councillor Tompkins. Worthless, in fact. No use to society at all. Oh, I don't know, said Atkins, who was nobody of importance, just a schoolmaster. I'm not so sure. It depends on what you mean by use. No practical or economic use, said Tompkins. I dare say he could have been made into a serviceable cog of some sort if you schoolmasters knew your business, but you don't, and so we get useless people of his sort. If I ran this country, I should put him and his like to some job that they're fit for, washing dishes in a communal kitchen or something, and I should see that they did it properly. Or I would put them away. I should have put him away long ago. Put him away? You mean you'd have made him start on the journey before his time? Yes, if you must use that meaningless old expression. Push him through the tunnel, into the great rubbish heap, that's what I mean. Then you don't think painting is worth anything? Not worth preserving or improving? Or even making use of? Of course painting has its uses, said Tompkins. But you couldn't make use of his painting. There's plenty of scope for bold young men not afraid of new ideas and new methods. None of this old-fashioned stuff. Private daydreaming. He could not have designed a telling poster to save his life, always fiddling with leaves and flowers. I asked him why once. He said he thought they were pretty. Can you believe it? He said pretty. What, the digestive and genital organs of plants, I said to him. And he had nothing to answer. Silly footler. Butler, sighed Atkins. Yes, poor little man. He never finished anything. Ah, well, his canvases have been put to better uses since he went. But I'm not sure, Tompkins. You remember that large one? The one they used to patch the damaged house next door to his? 
after the gales and floods. I found a corner of it, torn off, lying in the field. It was damaged, but legible. A mountain peak and a spray of leaves. I can't get it out of my mind. Out of your what? said Tompkins. What are you two talking about? said Perkins, intervening in the cause of peace. Atkins had flushed rather red. The name's not worth repeating, said Tompkins. I don't know why we're talking about him at all. He did not live in town. No, said Atkins. But you had your eye on his house all the same. That is why you used to go and call and sneer at him while drinking his tea. Well, you've got his house now, as well as one in town. And you need not grudge him his name. We were talking about Niggle, if you want to know, Perkins. Oh, poor little Niggle, said Perkins. Never knew he painted. That was probably the last time Niggle's name ever came up in conversation. However, Atkins preserved the odd corner. Most of it crumbled, but one beautiful leaf remained intact. Atkins had it framed. Later, he left it to the town museum, and for a long while, leaf by Niggle hung there in a recess and was noticed by a few eyes. But eventually the museum was burnt down, and the leaf and Niggle were entirely forgotten in his old country. It is proving very useful indeed, said the second voice. As a holiday and a refreshment, it is splendid for convalescence. And not only that, for many, it is the best introduction to the mountains. It works wonders in some cases. I'm sending more and more there. They seldom have to come back. No, that is so, said the first voice. I think we shall have to give the region a name. What do you propose? The porter settled that some time ago, said the second voice. Train for Niggles Parish in the bay. He has shouted that for a long while now. Niggles Parish. I sent a message to both of them to tell them. What did they say? They both laughed, laughed. The mountains rang with it. The end. Reflex, reflex.